Hey, so Romans chapter 1. Let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Lord, we just thank you for your word today. God, I thank you. um, You just want to speak to us. You tell us in Psalm 138 that you've exalted above all things your name and your word. In fact, that psalm tells us you've even exalted your word above your name. And Lord, we want to just hear what your word says to us this morning. That you would, that you would uh, speak to us, Lord, and that you would give us ears to hear you, eyes that see you, Lord. I pray that you'd come and just minister to each one of our hearts, Lord. This is a tough passage. But to Jeremiah, you said this. You said, let him who has his dreams speak dreams, and let him who has my word speak his word. Speak my word. And Lord, we want to be a church that honors your word, that holds scripture in the proper view. Lord, we believe in the inspiration of your word. And so, Father, we pray that uh, you would pierce our hearts today as we consider these things, Lord, that you would change us, that you would transform us, that we would be drawn to Jesus and in awe of you this morning. And so, God, we just ask your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. So part two, this morning we got into these verses last week, uh, Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32, and we're going to jump back in, we're going to kind of focus on uh, the last 11 verses of this section of scripture, but I think we need to just kind of review to get our bearings again on where we are with this passage. This is, this is kind of a, this is an awesome passage. This is actually one of those passage, passages as, as believers who hold to a high view, who, who hold a high view of the inspiration of God's word, the, the inspiration of the Bible. This is one of those passages that puts us as Christians in conflict with the wisdom of this world and the wisdom uh, of the culture around us. And so it's a challenging uh, passage. You know, I come to a passage like this and the question always is like, hey, are we going to honor God's word? Are we going to declare what it says? Or will we bend to what's acceptable, what we're, what we're told sometimes around us? And so let's, che- let's check this out. I'm going to pick it up in verse 16, actually. We'll just back up a little bit. Paul says this. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We spent a fair bit of time on this verse and we talked about how this, this declares to us that in the gospel there is a revelation and it's the revelation of the righteousness of God, the goodness of God. That's what we find out in the story of Jesus Christ and his coming to earth and his uh, offering himself on the cross for the sins of the world, dying and being raised from the dead and offering the gift of salvation to us. That we receive by faith. That that is the revelation of the goodness of God towards his creation. But then Paul goes on as as we're going to look at this morning. And he also says that that there's there's another revelation of God. A second revelation. And it doesn't have to do with his goodness. It has to do with his wrath. Let's check it out. In verse 18 it says this. For the wrath of God is revealed. There's that other word. That word revealed again. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in these things that have been made so they are without excuse. And so just to bring us back to the heart of uh, where we are in this text, we talked a little bit, I told you a story last week about uh, when we did the Powell Lake canoe trip and we got out onto Goat Lake in the middle of the night and we looked at the stars and really the, the beauty of the stars and the awe with which we saw them that night was based on the reality of the dark context that we were in. And so Paul here does that very thing, same thing. He wants to set the light of the gospel against the darkness of, of sin and, and God's wrath so that Jesus shines brighter. And so he's going to take us on this little journey into darkness and into a picture of the wrath of God. Now when we talk about the wrath of God, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about, we're not talking about human anger. It's not petty. It's not flippant. It's, it's, it's got a legitimate source. This is the wrath of God. It's indignation from the Lord against godlessness, against the wickedness of man. And the wrath of God is really revealed in the common experience of mankind and the human experience. And what, what, Paul is telling us is this is that the the wrath of God is simply this that man leaves God to himself as we're going to is sorry the other way around there that God leaves man to himself that that as mankind rejects God then God lifts his hand off and as we go through this text we're going to see that that in our nature humankind without God is futile in our thinking we're foolish in the desires of our heart. Paul is going to tell us about the depravity that, that is in our bodies and how we are debased in our minds outside of, outside of a relationship with God that, that, that we're given over to sinful desires, to, to shameful lust, to a depraved mind. And by nature, all of us outside of Jesus Christ are experiencing the wrath of God as we reject God. And so... You know the question, the age-old question is always this that, that people ask is it's how can a loving God, like think about this, I mean you've asked this, we've all asked this, how can a loving God allow such terrible things to happen? I mean we can just look, we look around the world and we go, what's going on? Where is God in the midst of this? I don't understand this, I can't. Uh, get a handle on this. Where is God? Where is this loving God in the midst of everything we see? But, you know, here's the thing. I always think about that question. That's the wrong question. You know, when you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. And what you need to ask is the right question. And the right and proper question, as we see in Romans chapter 1, actually, is, should be more along, this, along these lines. How can humankind constantly reject the love of God? It's, it's not, you know, how can a loving God allow such terrible things to happen? No, the right question is how can humankind constantly reject a God who is reaching out 
to them with love? That's the real question, and we like, to, we like to flip the equation. We like to put the blame on God, when in reality, how can a man or woman constantly reject God's love for them? Look, you know, as we go through this text this morning, if there's one thing that needs to be clear to you, it's that God loves you, that his heart beats for you, that before Paul ever tells us about the wrath of God, he tells us the wonder and the awe of God's righteousness that God has made a way through Jesus Christ. He loves you, and his love is revealed in the good news of Jesus Christ. And so that's the right question. How can we reject his love for us? Because as we're going to see here again, God has made his existence very clear to all mankind. Paul tells us this. We'll just skim over some of this a little bit that we talked about last week. That the truth of God is clearly seen in creation. In the act of creation. In the reality of nature. In creation around us and to reject God is to reject the clear testimony of himself that he has given us in creation and in nature. In fact, there's this unique word that we talked about last week in scripture that God uses to define his act of creation towards us. It's a Greek word poema and it, and it speaks of God's workmanship, but it speaks of more than just workmanship, it's a work of art, is what the scripture is telling us. That creation is his work of art. Poema speaks of the fact that, that creation is like a poem that God has written to you. You know, a poem, a definition of a poem is just simply this. A complete and self-contained piece of writing in verse that is set out in lines of a set length. It uses rhythm and imagery, and often rhyme to achieve its effect. And that's what God has designed creation to be. It's like a poem. There's a rhythm to it. You know, there's imagery that he's using to speak of himself. And creation is, is a well-written poem that's like beautiful for your ear and beautiful for your eye. Like literally, creation is God's work of art towards us, his, his creation. For all of us to see. And in that, Paul tells us that God reveals some things about himself. We talked a lot about this last week. I'll just skim over it this morning. He said, in, in this, the, invisibility, the invisible qualities of God, namely, his eternal power and his divine nature are seen. So eternal power means this. That God not only has the power to produce creation, Genesis 1, in a, in a one-time act, he, he spoke, and the earth and everything came into existence. Matter came into being. And, and God has the power to constantly sustain creation. Not only did he bring it into his existence, but he sustains it. You know, we're taught in, in the book of Genesis that by God's word that, that Adam was in the garden, and Adam was given the task of caring for the garden, for working the garden, and, and I would say this, that's our task too. We're to work the earth so we can make a living, so we can provide for our families, and at the same time, we're to care for the earth like Adam did. He cared for the, you look after your garden. You look after the earth because it's God's work of art by which he reveals himself. You know, just going through this text this week, I just had the privilege of, 
uh, traveling over the last couple of years, I've been to India and Egypt and Jordan, some countries that are pretty, you know, depressed compared to the Canadian condition. And, and, and one of the things that was just so shocking to me was the filth, the, the garbage, the, the way things were treated, the way, the way people looked after God's creation. And the reality is, is this, is that mankind in places has done damage to the earth through bad stewardship. But in the ultimate sense, I think this, I mean, we're, I, I mean, we love to be told we're destroying the earth. And I think really in the ultimate, you know, it's going to be uninhabitable and this and that. I mean, ultimately, I, I really believe through the word of God that that's, that's a lie. You know, we're taught we can save the earth. And that's a lie because the reality is this, is that creation came into its existence and, it's, and it is sustained and it continues because someone holds it together. His name is Jesus. He's holding it together. And, that's, and, and so that's a, a lie that we hear. He himself is sustaining creation and creation is his workmanship to reveal himself to us. And so until God is finished with this earth, I'm pretty convinced he's going to hold it together. <laughs> I think you could be convinced too. And so, you know, as we think about this question, well then, how does, how does you know, how can mankind reject such a revelation of a loving God? Well, Paul tells us the second thing revealed in God's poema, his workmanship, his, his art of creation is this, his divine nature. And we talked about this a little bit more at length last week, but we said this means that the, the, creation, the creation reveals the reality of the Trinity. We talked about the space, matter, time continuum. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, obvious and apparent in three persons. The divine nature of God. That there's an invisible and yet omnipresent Father. That there is the visible and approachable Son of God, Jesus. That there is the indwelling, guiding counselor, the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons who are yet one, that is the nature of God. And just like his eternal power is revealed in creation, nature is speaking to us about, about uh, this divine nature of God. And so God has made creation to reflect himself. And Paul says this, everyone knows it, whether they want to think they realize it or not. God re has revealed himself so clearly in the poema of creation that Paul says this, that everyone's without excuse. That there's no excuse, that it's a language that doesn't need words because you can see it with your eyes. God so clearly revealed his creation that it begs us to ask this question. It's like, well then how, how do why do people reject God? Well, how can mankind ignore a loving God who is so clearly revealing himself all the time to all of, his, all of humanity, his creation? God, God can be clearly seen through the things that have been made. Paul says we're, we're without excuse. And so as man rejects that which is so clear about God, Paul says this, he becomes the object of God's wrath. That's a scary thing, isn't it? Which simply means this, is that God begins to leave his creation to their own devices. He allows you to remain in and to experience the, the consequences of sin. And it's, it's a bad scene. It's like rejecting, mankind rejecting God is not a good thing. 
And so Paul tells us a little bit about it. Look at verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And we talked about how last week about how this passage lays out something very contrary to what much of our culture believes, that, that, that there is this belief in the evolution of mankind. You know, through natural selection and survival of the fittest, man, we're just like improving and getting better and better. But Paul tells us something else. He begins to lay out for us the de-evolution of mankind. That the trajectory is actually going the opposite direction and it begins with mankind rejecting God. That's the starting point. That's the genesis of de-evolution. And so Paul says this, man makes two mistakes that lead him to participate in this tragedy. The first one he says is this, is that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. You know, I think this, it, it doesn't matter what you think or what you think you know unless it leads you to glorify God. That's, I guess what I'm saying is this, is that the glor glorifying God is the purpose of your life. You, your life has no higher function or purpose than to bring glory to God. That's what you're designed for. To just bring glory to God. His glory is the end of all things in your life. That he would be honored. That he would be glorified. That he would be lifted up. Like we sang this morning. Be lifted up. There's no higher place that humankind can take than, than that's when we're, we're, we're functioning in God's desire for us. When we just begin to worship him and to lift him up. His, his word says that in him we live and we move and we have our being in him. We exist by him and for him. We're made in his image and in his likeness. We read in Philippians 2 verse 10 and 11 that God is glorified when we bow the knee and we confess Jesus is Lord. And failing to do so is a mistake, Paul tells us. But he says the second thing, besides not honoring and glorifying God, the second mistake that mankind makes in this great tragedy is this, is that although they, they knew God, they never gave thanks to him. And last week we talked a little bit about ungrateful, un ungrateful children. Remember that? If you, if you didn't get a chance to check it out, you can go on our church website and listen to it. But, you know, the reality is this, is that ingratitude is sin. You ever been around just a spoiled, rotten little brat? <laughs> it's an awful thing, isn't it? It's a, yeah, my, I see my mom looking at my kids. I don't know why that is, but I just, I just saw that. So, <laughs> someone talk to that lady. Those kids are awesome. <laughs> oh, they were just having fun. You know, look it. We have all had the experience of being around an ungrateful child, haven't we? It's maddening. You watch a parent and they're like bending over backwards, giving the kid everything, trying to, you know, just make everything smooth. And, and what happens is this, this kid just gets worse and worse and it's like nobody wants to be around them. Maybe nobody wants to be their friend. Adults don't, nobody likes them, you know, except their parents that brought them into the world. Just ungrateful, spoiled brat. Not talking about my kids, I'm talking about your kids. No. <laughs> No, but I would say this, look, you know, there's like tons of bad things that you can look around in this world and you can have an explanation for it. Here's one thing that there's not an explanation for. An ungrateful child. 
you can't explain that away because it's, it's not right. It's like the worst thing a kid could ever be is an ungrateful, spoiled brat because there's no excuse for it, right? There's no excuse. And spoiled brats incense you because it incenses God. Because God has hardwired all of us to know that ingratitude is actually sin. And, and, ha- and how much worse is it if we're the spoiled brats towards our father? That's the picture Paul's painting for us here. And so it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter who you, who you are or what you think you are. Unless, Paul says, it leads you to do two things. To honor God, to glorify him, and to express your gratitude towards him. Everything else, you know, is just rhetoric. It's religion. And I guess the question for us is this, is how about us? Are we ungrateful children who are failing to give honor to the heavenly father? You know, I I just, I think about this text, I find it like really convicting. I'm like, man, my life needs to overflow with more thankfulness. It's interesting that Paul, that Paul, that Paul tells us that it's the will of God, it's, I think it's in First or Second Thessalonians, that we'd be thankful in all things. And when we glorify God and when we give thanks to him, the picture here that's painted for us is that it actually sets us free from sin. It sets us free from uh, the sinful desires of our heart, from shameful lust, from a depraved mind. And the reality is this, is that that God loves you, but when you and I don't glorify him or give thanks to to him, we're doing this. We're rejecting his love. We're rejecting his goodness. We're rejecting his provision, rejecting Jesus. And I guess what we need to always remember is this, is that, that Jesus loves you that his heart beats for you, that the heart of God beats for you and we need to learn to rest in that, to glorify him, to honor him and to overflow with thankfulness to him. But Paul is gonna tell us something. He's gonna tell us what happens when these kids continue on in this pattern, so to speak. What happens to mankind when they fail to glorify God and give him thanks? We talked about this Last week, the, there's two things mankind does. Begins to suppress truth and substitute truth with lies. His thinking, Paul says, becomes futile, which means his thoughts become empty and vain and foolish. His foolish heart, he says, becomes darkened and the heart is deprived of light. You know, you think about our, our, our heart. The heart is the center and the seed of our spiritual lives. But Paul says this, when you don't honor and glorify God, that center of the spiritual place of your life becomes unintelligent, stupid. And it's in this condition that man will do things that he wouldn't have done before. Mankind will do things that he wouldn't have done if he was glorifying God and giving thanks to him. And Paul tells us that in this condition, mankind makes three exchanges. I want you to watch for this word exchange. I'm going to point it out. As we go through it. So let's look at the three exchanges. Verse 22. Claiming to be wise. They became fools. De-evolution. You see that? They moved from one spot to another. Claiming to be wise. They became fools. And exchanged. Circle that word. 
the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. So he says this. Mankind exchanged the glory of immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This is the substitution of lies. The, the, the substitution for that which was reality, God. And to exchange means this. It just means to swap one thing for another. And the first thing man swaps in regards to the glory of God is for the mortality uh, he swaps is the, the glory of immortal God. Now let's talk about this for a second. What's the, what's the glory of God? It speaks of his splendor. Speaks of his brightness, his magnificence, his, his preeminence. And so to say that God is immortal is to say that he is incorruptible, that he's eternal, that he's imperishable, that he's not subject to decay, that he's not subject to corruption. And man swaps that truth about God for images, Paul says, made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, reptiles. The splendor of God is exchanged for an image, a likeness of man. Mortal man, meaning something that is unlike God, where God is immortal and man is mortal, man is corruptible and, and, and perishing. Paul says mankind changes the image to to birds and animals and reptiles, which is actually speaking of snakes there, in contrast to four-footed creatures. And the reality is this, it's like, it's like foolish. That's what he's telling us. It's a foolish thing to bow down to an idol, to bring food to an idol, to, to take an inanimate object and begin to bow down and worship it. To take an object like a stone or a piece of wood and carve an image of a man or an animal into it and then worship it. He says it's futile. It's like something that a darkened mind does. It's, it's something, it's the action of a foolish heart, he tells us. And he says this, that such actions have tragic results. Now, I'm going to just point these out to you here. They're going to come in two ways. These results. He's going to say they're, they're going to affect the body of mankind and they're going to affect the mind. So let's watch for those as we go through. First, he tells us about the effect on the body. He says, therefore, verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So simply this, in his wrath, God gives us up to the sinful desires that are in our, in our, in our hearts. It says, it says there, you'll see God gave them over. God gave them over. That's a statement of fact. It's something that actually happens, Paul tells us. That, that our lusts and our desires for things that are forbidden and that, that stand in contradiction to God and his nature, things that are shameful, mankind gets given over to. And the result is this, is that Paul says that mankind will degrade their bodies with one another. We'll treat ourselves with contempt. That we'll actually treat, our, we'll insult our own bodies and we'll dishonor the image of God that is written into each one of us. You know, it's interesting, the world calls that freedom. <laughs> you think about it, the world actually calls that freedom. It's like, no, it's my body 
I do what I want with it. I, 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 whatever acts I want, it's my body and that's freedom. But that's not what the word of God tells us. We, we're, we're in error if we think that's freedom. Paul says this, those who act out that way, do such things, they've been given over in a sense. In a, in a sense, they've been betrayed into the hands of their own sinful desires. That's not freedom. You're, you're a slave. You're a slave. It's not the mercy and kindness of God that allows mankind to continue in that state. It's, it's actually his wrath that says, okay, I'm, I'm right here. I'm holding out my hands, but I, I guess if you're going to reject me, then you can sense the consequences of your rejection. And it's actually his wrath that allows us to go on destroying ourselves with sin. Look at verse 25. He tells us about the second exchange that happens. Verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. So Paul says the second exchange that happened is this. They, they exchanged truth for a lie. Again, exchange, it's, it's, a, it's to swap one thing for another. And truth, to swap truth for a lie. And literally, the original language expresses this idea. It's not a lie. It's not they swapped the truth for a lie. But it's they swap the truth for the lie. The lie. And Paul is taking us right back to the Genesis account as he tells us this. It's a reference back to Genesis chapter 3. What was the lie? Well, Satan came, the serpent, right? He came and, and he met Adam and Eve in the garden, as you well know. And in the garden, the serpent told them, he told Eve, while Adam was standing right there. And actually, you know, I think this is an important thing here. I'm going to speak to this for a second, you know, to the men. To the men for a minute. Because Adam stood there, and I always think this about Adam in this story. He was a do-nothing. He was a do-nothing. You know, his wife was there, and she was being tempted to take the forbidden fruit. And he did nothing. And you know, I would just say to us men, I would speak to us this morning, it's like, do not stand there and do nothing when you see the evil one tempting your wife or tempting your family. Don't be a do-nothing. You stand up. That's, that's your wife. That's your family. That is God's gift to you. You have to protect. You have to fight for your family. Love protects. And Eve was deceived and Adam stood there and he did nothing and then he participated with her and that which he knew was sin. You know, part of this story in Genesis chapter three is this, is that Eve was deceived but Adam, eyes wide open. He knew what he was doing. And guys, we got to man up, you know? Kill the snake, so to speak. Speak the truth in love and to the lives of your family and to your marriage and to your wife. What was the serpent's lie in Genesis chapter 3? He said this, you won't die. It's not true. God, God wasn't telling you the truth when he said you'll surely die if you eat the fruit from this tree. And Satan sold it. 
He sold the lie by, by claiming that God, God is holding out on you. He's holding out on you. And, and Satan suggested that God's intentions, his design, his plans towards Adam and Eve was not the best. It wasn't the best thing. God's holding out. There's so much more and you're getting ripped off. And Satan promised that their eyes would be opened. He, he promised that, that like God, they would know good and they would know evil. You know what that means when we say like to know good and to know or to know evil? It means this, to know it by experience. This isn't talking about head knowledge. It, it's saying you will know evil by your participation. This is your opportunity. Not just knowledge in the mind, but know how. And you can be acquainted. You can be skillful in evil. And the serpent was lying. And the truth was that Adam and Eve were, were already like God. They were made in his image and in the likeness of God. And like God, they were already knowledgeable and they were skillful in doing something else. They were skillful in good. They were skillful in relationship with God. They were skillful in walking in the garden with God. I mean, don't you? Isn't that where you want to have skill? I want to know God. I want to know the goodness of the Lord. And here's the reality about God. God's not skillful at evil. He's not skillful at evil. God's righteous. God is holy, we say. God is good. And Satan was lying about the reality of participating in the forbidden fruit. And, and when Adam and Eve ate of that, that fruit, they realized their nakedness. And in their attempt to regain that which they had lost, they, they tried to cover it up, grab some fig leaves. They tried to reestablish that which was lost in the exchange that they made. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and then they tried to put it back together by covering it up. And Paul says this about those who exchange the, the truth of God for a lie. He says this, they, they worship and they serve created things rather than the creator. You know, worship, if we're to put a definition on worship, Worship means this, it, it means to speak, it speaks of fear or it speaks of to, to be afraid or to honor something in a religious sort of sense. And so Paul says in, the, in this exchange, something happened. Their worship moved to something else. It means they began to work for created things. They, they began to work for the lie. They put themselves at the disposal of the lie and I really think, wow, this is like our generation, right? This is the culture around us. We serve created things rather than the creator. You know, I think like, man, I'm like all for being good stewards of the, the environment and looking after, that is righteous and it's right and it should be that way. Totally for it. But I think much of our culture has gone, whoo, the pendulum swung to an extreme level to, to this point where it's actually serving the created thing rather than the creator. You know, when I think of, you know, serving, I always think of like a, you know, the waiter or the waitress coming to your table. You know, how may, how may I serve you? How, ca how can I help you? You know, when you think of this earth, remember, God, God, is, 
God's created poema, his workmanship, his art for us to reveal himself. He didn't create us for natural things. God created natural things for us. And much of, you know, I don't know, that green environmental movement exists because there's an exchange that's happened. There's a, there's a serving created things rather than the creator. Exchanging the creator for, for created things, Paul tells us, creates really tragic results. Look at verse 26, just the first part of it. He says, for this reason, here's this expression again, God gave them up. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The, uh, the NIV says it this way, that he delivered them into the hands of shameful lusts. Verse 26. Keep going here. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their heir. So the third exchange is this. Paul tells us there's an exchange of natural relations for unnatural relations. And it's not like, not like an easy thing to talk about, is it? But this is the word of God, so we're going to go right through it and we're going to deal with it. And, you know, uh, w- as I go through this, I just think, man, I, like, we want to have a heart and a love for everyone, everywhere. That's the gospel for people to hear about the, the love of God. But we want to be biblically correct before we're politically correct, right? And we know what this is talking about. Acts of homosexuality and, and lesbianism. This is the third exchange in this passage. It's an abandonment, Paul says, of that which is natural. And when the scripture here speaks of that which is natural, it is speaking of that which is inborn in nature and which is governed by instincts. Okay? And the, that which is unnatural is that which is contrary to that. that. It's something that goes against nature. And Paul says this, for a man to be inflamed with lust for another man or a woman to be inflamed with lust for another woman, that's like not natural. It's unnatural. Now, the wisdom of this is where, you know, the Bible and culture come into conflict, isn't it? Because the wisdom culture of this world says that those who act out in those manners and homosexual acts are doing what comes natural to them by nature. It's natural in them, and and some of them try to even argue that from the Bible, but this passage defines for us what is natural. It gives the definition of what is natural and what is unnatural. And it says that for a a man to have relations with a a woman is natural and for a man to have relations with a man or a woman to have relations with a woman is, is against instinct. It's against what is inborn in God's design. And we read that for a man to be inflamed with lust for another man means this, that that he has to, to do that act, he has to abandon and leave behind and throw away natural relations for something that is unnatural. And the scripture says this, straight up, that it's a shameful act, meaning this, that it's improper, that it goes against God's design 
It's the lie is the idea here. I mean, we go back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God and they, they realized their nakedness, they made an attempt to reestablish that which had been lost. They made an attempt to reestablish the image of God, the, the, the desire to have relationship with God in themselves, and they, and they took those fig leaves, Genesis 3 tells us, and they sold them into a covering for their nakedness. They were covering shame. That's the idea. They're covering shame. And when God came looking for Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and they, they were hiding, remember they were hiding, and when God came looking for them, and he called them, and said we were afraid, and they came out from, God said, let me cover you. You don't need to put fig leaves together. Let's deal with your shame. Let me heal this in you. You know, let me make a covering. And the Bible tells us that God actually covered their nakedness that he, for the first time, the first act of death in the garden was this, that God killed an animal. Blood was shed so that he could make clothing to cover the unrighteousness and the shame of Adam and Eve so that their shame could be covered. Blood was shed. Sin was atoned for. Nakedness was covered. And, and their insufficient efforts of covering nakedness with fig leaves could just be cast aside. Now I think about this in our culture. Case in point. Let's talk about the one that's being discussed right here in the word of God. The acts of homosexuality. Okay? The fact that that community has to, you know, battle for the right, let's say, to be married or to receive social benefits of marriage or need for recognition. Like that desperate, desperate, desperate need for recognition. Parades, and it's like, it was a day, you know, and then it's like, uh, you know, a week committed to celebrating this life. Now it's like a whole month. Now I don't even know what month it is anymore. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be facetious here. I'm like just trying to speak truthfully, truthfully. And really, all these things is an admission on their part that they're trying to reestablish something that is lost. I'm not saying that to be judgmental whatsoever. It's an attempt to cover up shame. It's an attempt to normalize something that's contrary to nature. It's dressing the truth with a fig leaf. And, and, and if it's not, then why does, why does any of it matter? Why don't you just like, what do I care what happens in your bedroom? <laughs> like, why do, why do I care? What, what do you care? You know, it's like, what's going on? They're working and serving a lie. Working and serving the lie. And the reality is, is these things are sin. And so, you know, as we talk about this issue, I, I always find this, like, because the church has such a bad reputation for this discussion, right? Like, we got a bad reputation. Here we are. Maybe you're here for the first time. You're like, I knew it. These guys are a bunch of freaking psychos in this place. <laughs> the church has a bad reputation. And I, part of that is justified. But a lot of it is not. Just because we're silent. Because sometimes we don't know what to do. Sometimes we don't know how to express love for people. And... 
And you know, maybe even for lots of people in the church, they go, well, I, I don't like talking about this issue. I don't relate to these things, you know. Even Christians do do this, and their unspiritual mind begins to puff up. <laughs> not me. Oh, I'm so above that. I'm not like those people. You know what I'm talking about, because you think it. I called you on it. No. We all, we all think that. You know, we think, well, you know, somehow we fill our minds with lies and we say, well, I'm better than that person. I don't participate in that. In, in, you know, I would just want to remind you as we have this discussion that all of our hearts are adulterous and sinful and full of deceit and apart from Jesus Christ, no one has salvation. And, and the reality is, is, is that when, you, when, you, when Paul tells ab- us about this, he is telling us what is in the human heart. Now, I hate to say this, but Paul is telling us this, that the reality of these things lie within every single one of us. That no one's above anything that we've read in this passage. You say, well, not me. That's not what the word of God is telling you. You honor God with your body. You, you be a grateful child because none of us is above any of these acts. If you think you are, I would say this. You don't know the potential of the depravity that lies within your heart should God just lift his hand off. And I think it's important that whenever the church, as, we, as a church, that, we, that when we have this discussion on this particular issue culturally, and we're gonna do this a lot at Jesus Culture, we have to level the playing field. Too often we don't level the playing field, you know? So let's level it for a minute. And remember then God's eyes, adultery, fornication, I don't know, sexual immorality, they they are no less issues of sin than homosexual acts. And I would say this, the stats don't lie. You know, men, the stats don't lie. Like the, the stats in regards to the number of men who are cruising the internet to view porn. It's like off the charts, right? The, the highest age range, I was looking at numbers the other day because we're going to show a, a documentary here coming up in October. We're getting that organized. Uh, the highest age group where that's going on is in our teenagers, 13 to like 18, 19. And, you know, Maybe you're not participating in homo- homosexual stuff, but you, as for men, you know, you desire more than one woman. Maybe a woman who's married, not your wife. You know, that's adulterous. Jesus addressed that. He's like, that stuff starts in your heart, man. If you look with lust, you're guilty. You're guilty. And you know, people do that. They like, they fantasize about being with different people and I just think I think for the men I would say this I'm going to address the ladies in a second for the men I would just say this that if you tell me you don't you don't battle with sec- sexual temptations I, I think you're probably lying and I, I, I I'm not saying that to condemn you I'm talking about leveling the playing field so like let's level it and not just point out one group we're all condemned before God apart from Jesus Christ. Amen? 
I mean, ladies, I could say this, you know, for, for women, it seems that intimacy starts in the head, you know? Fantasizing, whatever, many ladies fill their minds with imitations and ideals that do not match reality. You know, I don't know. I don't watch these movies. I get annoyed every time my wife's watching. I'm like, seriously? I'm like, out of here. You know, chick flicks, we call them in our house. <laughs> you know, chick novels. And they can do this. Look, they can do this. They can put man up against a fantasy that he can't compete with. They put your husband up against a fantasy that he cannot compete with. My abs, they just don't look like that. <laughs> I, I, I don't go plural when I talk about abs. I have an ab, okay? <laughs> and you know, ladies, you can be disappointed or you can be unfulfilled with the man that God has given you. He's gifted you and you can be disapproving of the life that he's provided for you or the way that he provides for your family. And I'll say this, it's sin. It's wrong before the Lord. And so, you know, as we level the playing field, I just, I just say this to you. It's easy to pick on people who we think, well, I'm better than them. Christians are famous for it. But, but I wish, look at, I want our church to be a place of freedom for people. And not how the world defines freedom. We just talked about that a few minutes back. Remember what they said? What the world believes freedom is? This is a place where you can come and you can worship Jesus and we'll let the Spirit of God work upon you as we teach the Word of God, as we love one another, and we'll let Him change our lives. Amen. And the reality is, is that human nature loves to categorize sin, but really, truly, the ground is level as at the foot of the cross. And so what Paul's telling us here is that God's wrath comes against sin. An inherent... In the nature of sin is a penalty. You know, whatever your perversion, pick your perversion, it will come with a penalty. And then there's another tragic result in this exchanging of natural for the unnatural. Paul tells us in verse 28, look at verse 28. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So Paul told us about the effect of the wrath of God on the body. But now he tells us the effect of the wrath of God on your brain, on your mind, on your thinking, on your worldview. And again, what he tells us here, this is a statement of fact. This isn't like, yeah, I think this might happen. He's saying, no, this happens. God will give you up to a debased mind. That, that's, that's to say this, that, the, the, that your mind will begin to abandon the natural for the unnatural. You know, they, they're, I mean, you know, there's all these studies and all this stuff all the time, right? Where, where science is trying to argue that there is something, let's, let's talk about the one, one issue that's in context here of this passage, uh, homosexuality. Where there's something f physiologically and psychologically different about that mind. And they say, yes, there is. And so does the word of God. It says that right there. God will give your mind over. And, and, and the mind is the, the faculty by which we perceive, by which we feel, by which we determine and make judgments and, and 
Paul says this, it becomes depraved, it actually degenerates and it becomes corrupted and debased. But the reality is, again, this is in all of us. Look at what he says in verse 29. We'll wrap up quickly here. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Paul gives 21, I counted them, 21 attributes to a debased mind. And man, I just like, I don't know about you, but I, I see bits and pieces of that in my mind, in my thinking. If God doesn't change that stuff in me, Unrighteousness is just a, we'll just go through them quickly here. Unrighteousness, it's just a general attitude of wickedness. Evil, that's a, that's a desire to do harm, to injure others or to drag them down with you. Covetousness, that means literally just to want more. You know, there's a trace of that in my heart and in my mind. I don't know about you, I don't want more. You know, more this, more that, more that. Satisfy myself. Malice. It's viciousness. So, so you, full of envy. Envy, you remember envy was, in the, was at the heart of the first murder, Cain and Abel. That, that was rooted in envy. Murder. Jesus said, if you're angry at your brother in your heart, man, that is the spirit of murder. Strife. It means to contend with someone because of your pride. Or deceit, that's to be crafty and cunning. Maliciousness, that's, that's painting the worst picture of a situation or a person. Or to be a gossip, gossip. that's to be a whisperer. It's grabbing ears, whispering in ears about other people. Slanderers, that's to speak openly about others and to destroy their reputation. To be a hater of God, that's to, that speaks of those who, who don't like God because it's like, you know, He's putting the brakes, the brakes on. He's saying, thou shalt not. And because it's, hating God has to do with the fact that you don't like that he limits some of the activities that you would like to participate. Insolent speaks of defiance or rudeness of those towards those who are superior to you. To be haughty is to be proud. Remember the word of God tells us pride goes before the fall. To be boastful is to pretending to do or to have what you do not have or what you are not. To be an inventor of evil. That's to constantly find new ways to sin. Disobedient to parents, you know. Who made you the authority over me? Foolish. It means to be unreasonable and unapproachable. Faithless means to refusing to abide by covenants, refusing in your life to just, I'm not gonna honor marriage. I'm not gonna honor this I signed. I'm not gonna have integrity here. I'm gonna be faithless. Heartless, without affection, unsociable, inhuman, unloving. To be ruthless is to have no mercy. And so look, you go through that list and you're like, whoa, ouch. There I am, there I am there. Well, that's in me there. I definitely have those thoughts sometimes. God help me. And he says this in verse 32. Let's read on. Last verse of this passage. He says, though they 
know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So as Paul talks about uh, debased bodies and depraved minds, he says this, the height of it, the, the absolute height that you can reach in this is to become an evangelist for evil. To be a promoter. You know, to be a promoter of evil. To say, yeah, no man. And just to, prom- to promote it. And so, you know, as I, I think about this, this passage, you know, as a believer seeking to have a high view of, of the inspiration of scripture, this is, like I said, one of these passages that is at the center for us as Christians of our conflict between the wisdom culture of this world and what the word of God says. And so with a passage like this, the question's always this. You know, will I, will I honor God? Will I stick to what God, God's word declares? Will I seek to honor these things in my life and tell people these things in love? Or will I, I bend to what is culturally the acceptable wisdom and practice of today? And you know, we, we read this text and there's a sense of it being uncomfortable, but you know, the real question that arises in the midst of a text like this is this, is well, how do I escape the wrath of God? Like to me, that's the real question. It's like, wow, all that stuff, I do not want the wrath of God on my life. How do I get out from under that? How do I escape these conditions in myself? You know, how can my thinking be fruitful rather than futile? You know, how can my heart find light rather than darkness? And the answer is really simple, isn't it? The answer is Jesus. That's the answer. The answer is Jesus. And Jesus said this. He, he said this. He says, you want to be fruitful? What do you do? Somebody say it out loud. If you want to be fruitful, what do you do? Remain in me, he said. You want to be fruitful? You remain in me. But Jesus, how do I escape darkness? <laughs> how do you escape darkness? I'm the light of the world. And we saw earlier in in this passage that there are two keys to escaping the wrath of God. They're this, that you glorify him and you give thanks to him. And Philippians chapter 2 verse 10 and 11 tells us how God wants us to glorify him and how he wants to give thanksgiving to him. And, and And it simply says this, this is what the Lord said in Philippians. He said, at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, you want to escape the wrath? It's simple. You glorify Jesus. You submit your life to Jesus. You confess Jesus with Lord. You say, Jesus, you are Lord. Save me. Heal me. Forgive me, Jesus, I put my faith in you. Jesus, I believe you died and you were buried and you rose again and you did it all to pay 
for the punishment that was due me through the wrath of God for sin. And I thank you that I'm forgiven in you. And so I put my faith in you. I surrender my life to you, Jesus. I believe in you, your Lord. That's what you do. You know, and, and, and I think, I guess, just considering, you know, the room and our context here, for, for those of you who are here and you're a follower of Jesus, but maybe there's some area in your life, there's some area or there's some issue of sin that's going on, and it's like, I can't seem to get free here. I can't find victory here. I'm in a battle in this spot. You know, I want to encourage you with greater focus, begin to just glorify God and give thanksgiving to him for all the areas of your life because he wants to break those patterns for you. He, he will break them. He's walking you through a process. You know, it's not, it's not very often that you just pray and it's gone like that, is it? Lord's teaching you to do battle. He's teaching you to walk. So you just begin, I would say to tell you, to begin to thank God for victory in that area of your life. Say, God, I glorify you. Though in practice I'm not experiencing victory, I know you're gonna bring it. And so I'm trusting you and I give you thanks, thanksgiving for that. Express your thankfulness to God for his provisions in your life, you know? And as, you're, as you do that, you know, he wants to break the power of sin in your life. Romans chapter two, we're gonna go there next week. It's, uh, Paul's gonna flip this argument right on his head. He's gonna come now from the total other angle. It's a really fun passage. So I encourage you to come back next week. Let's pray. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come. We're gonna close with a song. And I know it's a little late. We won't always be this long through Romans, okay? Romans chapter one's got a lot of meat in there. I feel like we're moving fast as it was. Would you guys stand with me? And let's pray, to, let's pray together. Can we sing Be Lifted Up? Can we sing Be Lifted Up? Okay, yeah. Lord, just as we come before you, Wow, God, we read, we read of this, this passage and just, it tells us that your wrath is a scary thing. Lord, I don't want to live life under the wrath of God. And so, Lord, I pray just for each person here that we would make that turn towards you. We thank you that though the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of man, Paul said this, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And Lord, the reality is, is that you love every single person here, Lord. You're calling them, you're inviting them. Lord, no one's here by accident this morning. You wanted them to hear your word, Lord. You wanted to hear them to hear these things. And so, Lord, I just pray that right now your spirit would draw every heart, every mind, Lord, as we begin to prepare ourselves just to sing one last song in worship. God, that our lives would bring honor to you, that they would glorify you, that we would overflow with thanksgiving to you, and that we would be submitted to your Savior, your man, the God-man, Jesus Christ.